0: You're listening to Sound Opinions and later in the show we'll finally delve into the world of Frank Zappa. Some of our listeners have been asking for this show for years. Yep. And uh, fortunately for them, Alex Winter released his great documentary Zappa last year. But first we've got some new music to review. Oh,
1: Jesus Christ, I-
2: That is a little bit of a song called I Feel Alive by Viagra Boys from their new album, their second, uh, Welfare Jazz. Greg, I uh, first discovered Viagra Boys as a buried treasure. They formed in 2015 in Stockholm, Sweden, two tattoo artists, Henrik Hokert and Sebastian Murphy. Uh, Murphy was born in San Francisco, but ended up living in Stockholm. They went out for a night of drinking that ended in a karaoke bar, where Murphy was belting out a song by Mariah Carey. The two gentlemen said, then and there, we must form a band. They started out with two EPs. The first album, 2018, Street Worms, really caught my attention. What are they giving us on their second album? It's more ambitious than the first, not to tip my hand. Uh, Let's play a song. We'll come back and we'll do our reviews. This is the opening track on Welfare Jazz, the first of 13 songs. It's called Ain't Nice by Viagra Boys. And you can have me.
0: ain't nice from viagra boys the new album is called welfare jazz ain't nice no he ain't jim uh,
1: that is <laughs> the that character is, that is he one portrays thing. yes
0: yes sebastian murphy playing in full character here uh embodying this creep this sleazebag who uh goes through life uh ruining lives including his own uh yes the first only, and
2: foremost his own
0: i think the closest parallel that i can think of in contemporary music to what uh, Sebastian Murphy is doing uh, in this persona that he is building on Viagra Boy's record is something like the early records of The Weeknd. You go, how can mm. anybody have sympathy for this guy? He, he sounds like an absolute creep, right? He, uh, he's an abusive person. The one thing that was redeeming about The Weeknd was in fact he owned up to it and in the same way I think Sebastian Murphy uh, points the finger as much as it himself as, as anybody else. Uh, I am this person I don't like it i'm close to the bottom, as he said uh, one uh, song into the sun where he goes, What kind of person have I become? What kind of he's questioning uh, yeah. this relationship that he has built for himself with the world with his with his lover and and realizing that much of what's bad about it is is because of him. Uh, at the same time, there's sort of a sleaziness about the record, a swagger to the record. You almost feel creepy about liking it, you know? No. Uh,
2: <laughs> Only if you would feel creepy
0: about liking Nick Grinder despi- Man or dis- the Stooges. He's a despicable person. Uh, you know, he plays a despicable person. But what I like about the record, the sound is is intoxicating. I love the way that skronky saxophone sort mm-hmm. of... Uh, twines around that slurry, blurry voice. It's almost like the saxophone and Sebastian Murphy's voice are the one and the same thing on this record. It's, it's a very much of a, a, a package deal. So when he sounds drunk and staggering and wayward, uh, the sound embodies that, you know the, the the track "Girls and Boys," where he just breaks into this gibberish. I love that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I yeah, think speaking it's in just tongues. It, it is it is a you know an intense record. It plays as humorous and almost uh, satirical at times, but at the same times, there's a sadness and a despair at the bottom of it as well. And i I didn't think I would like this record nearly as much as I do, but I I do like this record. Primarily because it really questions what it means to be a human being. You know, there's no black and white. Yeah. There's that big gray middle. And, and and is this guy a good guy or a bad guy? And you're trying to figure it out through well, the entire album. All
2: right, let, me, let me enlighten you. I think there's a level <laughs> uh, you're missing, or you need to dig a little deeper. I mean, you can get thrown with a stupid band name like Viagra Boys, Okay. What I think Murphy is singing about uh, is is a question that I think me and you and Andrew Gill and every thinking male white cis fan of rock and roll is asking uh, himself in 2021. Can I like you know the Rolling Stones or the Stooges or Nick Cave at his bad seediest and Grinder Man records? Right? Can I love that raw masculine? energy and not fall prey to toxic masculinity can i not be a jerk and a bonehead but be male right it's a very male record uh, and <laughs> but at the same time it is skewering uh racism classism, toxic masculinity, misogyny, with the same uh, the, the same energy that Idols is, Greg. Um, you know, not for nothing does the record build to an end with a cover of In Spite of Ourselves by the great John Prine, where Murphy is duetting with Amy Taylor of Amel and the Sniffers, another band I first fell in love with uh, as a buried treasure. In spite of ourselves will end up on a rainbow all us, the big
1: door prize.
2: I do think it's it's satirical. And look the problem with satire is it can be misunderstood. You can hear his drunken boorishness as a celebration of that or you can hear it as uh uh what i think it is a condemnation a a satire a uh uh, looking at yourself in the mirror and saying i don't want to be that guy but there are times when i become that guy but
0: you're you're ignoring the idea that he's walking that line you could go either way on this guy and i don't think it's nearly as clear-cut as you're making it seem Do you have thoughts on Viagra Boys' latest? Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, and let us know what you think.
2: Oh yeah, that is a little bit of Valley Girl. (laughs) Frank Zappa's highest charting single. His sole collaboration with his daughter, Moon. And the reason, the only reason many people even know the name Frank Zappa, uh, if that's all you know, then you really don't know much about Zappa. Greg, I think it's a subject we've avoided for a long time uh, despite uh, listeners often saying, when are you going to get to Frank Zappa? Because it is such a complicated musical legacy. Well, the day's arrived. Today we dig in and try to give a more accurate picture of Zappa, as well as our own insights into that vast discography.
0: Uh, Absolutely, Jim. It's a daunting and complex legacy. Uh, We're going to be talking with director Alex Winter in a little bit, uh, and his documentary is an excellent entree into uh, Zappa's career. But uh, let's start with the facts of Zappa's life before we get there. Uh, he was born in Baltimore in 1940. His uh, his dad was a chemist employed by the defense industry, so the family moved around a lot uh, when Zappa, Frank Zappa, was young. Uh, and they ended up in California working near a chemical plant, and uh That required the family to have gas masks in the house. So when Frank Zappa was a young kid, (laughs) (laughs) he's growing up in a house with gas masks. And you can imagine how that might have affected young Frank as a person. Drawn to music at an early age, I mean, he was listening to avant-garde classical music as a kid and being entranced by it. Uh, He was writing orchestral music before he started writing rock and roll. He didn't even start writing rock and roll songs until he was in his 20s. But he loves classical, he loved composing, and he figured the easiest way to get my compositions heard is to form a band. Just like any kid in California in the 60s probably, you know, they were thinking, hey, I can do this too. Uh, That meeting with Captain Beefheart, uh, Don Van Vliet, must have been something, huh, Jim? Well, absolutely. I mean, you
2: know, Van Vliet was a lover of the blues who understood the uh, what Brian Eno later called the idiot energy yeah. of those garage band Nuggets records, you know, Louie, Louie, and and uh, all of those tunes, which Zappa, you know, disdained, right? From the beginning, his first band, the Mothers of Invention, he was going to take the contrarian point of view. Famously, the Mothers put out a record called We're Only In It For The Money, mm-hmm. uh, Uh, parodying the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Uh, You know, the Beatles were about art. No, not the mothers. They were about uh, money, right? Zappa was always going to take the opposite view, whether it was a rock and roll garage band or or the ambitious artistic undertaking of Sgt. Peppers. He was going to go in a different direction. And early on, he was a record company executive, too. Mm-hmm. You know, when he met Captain Beefheart, he not only championed Beefheart's weirdness, uh, he started two labels distributed by Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. right? Bizarre and Straight. And Frank Zappa celebrates and... Uh, and uh, promotes the early music by Captain Beefheart, by Alice Cooper, by the GTOs, a group of what was then self-proclaimed groupies, mm-hmm. women who followed rock stars, and uh, Wildman Fisher, you know, Zappa, was early into the outsider artist thing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the the fact that he was championing these artists uh, and was one himself, somehow subverting the music industry from within. I mean, he was being championed or at least financed by these labels and creating this these art records that were uh, incredibly subversive, both on a musical level and a lyrical level. Uh, I mean, the guy was doing everything from blues and rock. He started out doing some bluesy stuff, as you'd mentioned, and and going into classical avant garde and jazz music very early on, and mixing Do-wop. up genres. Duop. He loved duop. He was a he was a true student of music. loved loved many different types and styles of music. Um, released countless records, multiple albums almost every year of his life. Yet, uh, as a serious composer who indulged in, let's face it, juvenile humor. You know, a yeah. virtuoso guitarist who sometimes didn't play the guitar at all. On many of his albums, a prolific recording artist more celebrated in some ways for taking on Tipper Gore in those Senate hearings on explicit lyrics than for his music.
2: Uh, you know, died early, Greg, uh, 52 years old mm-hmm. in December 1993, leaving behind uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of albums in dozens of styles. And I think one of the reasons we've always uh, been slow to get to the Zappa legacy is where do you even tell people to start? And how do you deal with the thornier problems of Frank? Well, we're going to try to answer the question of uh, how you get people to start. I think uh, Alex Winter's new documentary, Zappa, uh, is a good place to start. It really gets into what made Zappa tick and why his music still matters today. And then we'll come back and give uh, more of our thoughts on this complicated musical genius. That's all in a minute on Sound Opinions.
0: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim Dirigatis, and we're digging into Frank Zappa's life and music. Uh, The reason we're doing this episode now is that excellent documentary, Zappa, that was released late last year, and we should acknowledge up front that the director, Alex Winter, is also an actor best known for his role as Bill in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Now, we didn't mention that claim to fame in this interview. Well, almost didn't mention it. Alex, welcome to Sound Opinions.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here
2: i got to tell you before we get into talking about Frank, a million years ago when I started this show, I'll tell you how long ago it was, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure was new. <laughs> new in theaters. And uh, my partner was Bill Wyman, and we seriously considered for 10 seconds uh, calling the show Bill and Jim's Excellent Opinions. Uh, Just great. think excellent. of all
0: the royalties you could have been collecting, Alex. I mean, it was incredible. To it think would about have that. been excellent. <laughs> Obviously, Zappa is a
2: labor of love. The film is so in-depth and covers this incredibly uh it's a daunting career tell us how it started
1: well i was coming off of a pretty dark uh tech oriented doc i've been on for some time and it was immersive and i was looking to do something that was more how a bit more levity and out of the tech space and into an area that maybe was more culturally broad and my producer and I were quite curious as to why no one had made a, a Zappa doc, like a thorough in-depth examination of his life and his relationship to the times and and his relationship to his art. And I got to Gail Zappa and I uh, pitched her the take and, and she really liked the take. I think it was uncommon for her, for people to come at her with something that wasn't looking at Frank as a rock and roll 70s icon, you know, which was mm-hmm. really not my interest at all. And we hit it off. And um, then she gave us access to the vault full access, which um, really changed the course of, of everything because a, it, it allowed us to make a, a, a much more comprehensive film, but it also required us um, once I saw the vault, I realized that a lot of the stuff I wanted, sort of more uh, rare film material uh, was in disrepair or in danger of deterioration. So we kind of hit pause on the dock and spent two years, raised quite a bit of money through Kickstarter, and then spent about two years with my team uh, preserving all that mm. endangered mm. media. And that was a, a, a mammoth undertaking and uh, very satisfying, but uh, took us some time. And we came out the other end of that with a lot of material to make the film with. Okay. This aisle here is where some of the best-known titles lurk. Here's Stuff from the Hot Rats. Here's the original 24-track Masters of Dynamo Hum, Dirty Love, Montana, Inca Roads, Redunzel. Shut Up and Play Your Guitar, Joe's Garage. Shake Your Booty.
0: Alex, so you said the 70s rock star uh, documentary didn't interest you. What was it that you were kind of hoping to portray here.
1: You know, my induction to Frank in the 70s was as much as a pop culture icon as it was um, a rock musician. I mean, he was kind of like a a Richard Pryor or George Carlin as much as he was a rock hero to my social group. And this gentleman plays perhaps (laughs) the strangest
2: of them all. He plays the bicycle, and his name is Frank Zappa. Thank you
1: you actually play a bicycle? Uh, Yeah.
2: Are you in the Musicians' Union? Uh, No. Do you play any other
0: musical instrument, anything more conventional perhaps?
1: Guitar, vibes, bass, and drums. Guitar, vibes, bass, drums, and bicycle. (laughs) (laughs) And then as I got to know him more, I really, like I got into Zappa's music mostly after college when it it dawned on me that he wasn't really a rock and roll musician at all, uh, that he was really more of an avant-garde composer who was using different genres and tropes in order to make his work. And uh, even the humor, I I realized it felt more like he would use humor the way uh, an avant-garde composer would use percussion, you know, in some very offhand way to elicit a kind of response.
0: He's a fascinating figure uh, and you can't really pigeonhole him, although people obviously tried. To somebody who's coming to Zappa with a sort of, as Jim said, this sort of daunting sense of, my God, where do you start? with this guy. Uh, where would you point them?
1: Yeah, if they really just want to know his music, I would give them Hot Rats and The Yellow Shark and just say listen to both of those and if you want to keep listening then you're in good <laughs> shape. Hot Rats. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Were you worried, given the loyalty of that Zappa following, were you worried that no matter what take you took, avant-garde composer, rocker, uh, Mothers of Invention fan, right,
1: somebody's got to be offended, right? Yeah, but that's very liberating, frankly, because I wasn't... I was so sure that no matter what I did, I would offend someone. I just didn't worry about offending anyone. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) We just got along and told the story that we wanted to tell. I wasn't going to make a legacy doc. We were telling a very particular story about this man that was driven mostly by his interior emotional life. And for me, I was interested in in where he was in his life at various points in his career and conveying that through his, you know, the the personal and intimate aspects of who he was. Mm
2: Mm-hmm. Do you think he was a happy man, Alex? Because uh, much of the film, uh, you don't spare the difficulties uh, that he caused other people, other musicians. Mm. He was uncompromising. He was singular in his vision. Some people would say that made him an a-hole. Many people do. (laughs) You quote some of them.
0: In the four years I was with Frank, he shook my hand once and said, good job. I don't ever... Remember Frank embracing somebody.
2: He was difficult, you know, and you don't spare that.
1: No, uh, and it's one of the things about him that, that I liked because it's human. Um, he's a human being, and, and I knew that, that it wasn't one-sided. I'm drawn to documentary characters that aren't one-sided, that have multiple layers to them that are valid, and he was a family man, and he was a philanderer. He was a martinet. Uh, And he was very collaborative. He was all of these, these contrasts. And that's a great doc subject because that really gives you a full picture of the strangeness and multifaceted nature of humans. And, and Zappa is an extreme example of those things. But, you know, even when I was interviewing artists who had worked with him, who had very contentious experiences, you know, there was, there wasn't one of them who didn't well up thinking about how moving their experiences with him had been and how Mm -hmm. important they were in their lives, not for reasons of fame, and they sure sure as hell weren't for financial reasons because no one was making lots of money. It was because they were so profoundly important years in their life in terms of his ability and desire to really pull the best out of people and, and find their inner best, as it were. Frank would often appear to be cold aloof and not personally involved with his trained monkeys as once he joked about we're just all trained monkeys right he's the circus ringleader or whatever but I want to tell you that he had great feelings for us he was he was human there were times when I didn't feel that he was so much and I did feel he was cruel at times, but he was a passionate man and, and he developed real love. I'm not going to say equally for everybody, but the people that he loved, he kept bringing back over and through many of the bands, many of the tours.
0: It's fascinating to me that you were able to explore some of these areas. Uh, you weren't sugarcoating it at all. And obviously the Zappa family and the estate, famously protective of his legacy, but it seemed like they gave you the leeway to go into these areas and tell the truth without sugarcoating it. Did that surprise you?
1: Yeah, well, I, I, I had final cut. Um, you know, I don't abuse that privilege, but I certainly maintain it. And I told Gail from the very outset, and she had passed before we even started making the doc, which was tragic and unexpected we thought we knew she had cancer but we thought she was going to live quite a bit longer but i told her at the very beginning that the film was going to be worse than all and that this wasn't going to be a glossy portrait or or kind of a superficial legacy movie but would really dig into all aspects of who he was i just said i would do that intelligently and respectfully but i wasn't gonna you know i wasn't gonna sugarcoat it
0: Mm -hmm. did anything that you found about Zappa's life surprise you? Yeah, I mean, there
1: was so much media I was surprised on a daily basis, to be honest with you. I mean, there was literally not a day that went by where we weren't finding some extraordinary thing that we didn't know about. The one that I was most taken by that had, thankfully, a lot of footage to correspond with it was how much time Frank spent in the 80s and going into the early 90s before his death traveling around the world and visiting other countries like Russia and getting a sense of how their economics work, how their cultural um, aspects work. I arranged to come to Prague on my way back to the United States from Moscow. And it was during my Prague visit, I proposed to them that if they needed some sort of representation in the West to help them get investment or whatever they needed to do, that I would be... Interested in doing that. And he wasn't doing this publicly. He wasn't like a cultural ambassador like we have now, like an influencer or like someone who's traveling to these, you know, to an African country with 15 camera people following them everywhere. He did this on his own without any noise at all, out of legitimate curiosity. And uh, I found that really inspiring.
2: Yeah, when you see people like Václav Havel uh embracing him, you know, famously the Velvet Revolution, right? For the Velvet Underground, but Zappa was the other big hero. You know, this music was that inspiring.
1: Yeah, it really was. And and that was very moving for him, I think, especially, you know, he wasn't doing so well commercially in the US at that time, and the world had gotten very corporatized, and we were in the middle of the Reagan era, and things were pretty grim and then into the Bush era and uh i think that was a moment for him of of affirmation that that his art and the struggles that he had put himself through had meaning for people i'm sure you already know it but this is just the beginning of your new future in this country and i hope that your new
2: future will be very perfect very perfect
0: the battle with the censors in the 80s, too, he was the face of that in many ways for the, you know, the counterculture. And that was another thing that I found incredibly powerful about him was that he was one of the artists who was willing to go up to the seat of power in America and confront these people about what they were saying about this music. And you could see kernels of that early in his life that he was sort of a, a rebel and, and didn't cotton to authority in any way. But it's a big step going from that to, you know, doing this as an adult and putting a suit on and, and, and you know, dealing with these people who were making these accusations. Did you get any, any sense of why he was so driven to take that extra step? Instead of just sort of complaining about it from the sidelines, he took that extra step to sort of be, you know, at the forefront of that.
1: There was a real direct line for me from having grown up around the post-war kind of military community in Maryland where he was born and spent his early years to the, the fights he had as a youth in California ending with his imprisonment on complete bogus charges of entrapment. There's a direct line from that young Zappa to the Zappa in middle age who's fighting like hell to maintain his artistic career, going to battle for a bunch of music artists who don't even show, to, show up to fight their own mm-hmm. you know, their own censorship fight and ending up taking, you know, as you said, the extra st- step of actually putting everything on the line in a degree and putting on a suit and going face to face in battle with forces that he'd really been up against his entire life mm-hmm but by then had certainly had achieved enough fame and had earned enough money to sidestep all of that if he had so desired. But I think, you know, these were very uh, impactful and important early life events that really made a huge imprint on him. And I don't think he was about to take that lying down. I really don't. I was surprised to see you hitting the protest. Why wasn't
2: someone like Prince involved with you in that? I mean he should have been involved in it but i think
1: that it's his right to keep his mouth shut it's also bruce springsteen's right to keep his mouth shut and anybody else that they went after they never attacked my lyrics they they attacked those people they even went after michael jackson but you
2: fought real hard for these people and it was never your music involved that's the thing
1: that shocked me it's the principle of the thing we live in a country where we're supposed to be free take a look at what happened in china you got a bunch of kids there who want democracy they don't even know what it is we supposedly
2: have it here what do we do Sit around and go, let somebody else take care of it
0: for me. Yeah. You know, his, his humor, I think, was a big part of what he was doing as well. Uh, some people would call it smutty, you know, explicit. Um, you know, but a, a line struck me. You got a great line early on in the movie where he was sort of describing himself, it seemed. If you could make someone laugh, that was good. If you could make life more colorful, then that was good. It seemed to be like a a summing up in some ways of how we approach things. I mean, do you think that's accurate? I do, which is why I
1: put it in. Um, I had always had a theory, which again is personal, but I feel is somewhat borne out by that quote, that Zappa was using humor the way an avant-garde composer would use weird household objects uh, as instruments. You know, the way Varese would would play with, with weird sirens and horns. you know i've met a lot of people who really couldn't get into zappa because they thought the music was great but then he's got to go and do these goofy lyrics mm-hmm. i think the way in for me was zappa the real aha moment i had was that there's it's just music it's just another thing to elicit a response to either elicit a laugh or to make you feel good or it's no different than the emotional response he wants to get from the more you know conventional musical forms he's playing with. To me the the humor was was a musical conceit more than seeing himself as like a Tom Lehrer or someone who was a straight up satirist.
2: Yeah, or Lenny Bruce. <laughs> it might be more probably. Yeah. or uh, yeah. The film ends near the end of Zappa's life with uh, him seeing his music performed by an orchestra in Europe. Um, You know, so 25 years down the road, Alex, what do you think the legacy is going to be? Is it going to be, you know, Joe's Garage and the rock albums? Is it going to be our orchestra is going to turn? Because it's not like there's a big Edgar Vares revival. You know what I mean? It's like I think most people only remember that name today because Zappa uh, said it all the time. But, you know, is it going to be like Karlheinz Stockhausen or or any of these difficult avant-garde classical composers?
1: I think that he is more embraced by the classical community than he is by the popular music community or, you know, the rock community specifically. Um, I mean, I know we got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and all that posthumously, but I think he's, you know, he's beloved for, as you said, I think there's like Joe's Garage, Apostrophe, Overnight Sensation. I think there's like a core group of albums that people kind of will hold on to is Zappa's classic rock albums, as it were. But there's so much more to him than that. And that is such a tiny slice of who he is that anyone who scratches that surface will immediately go, oh, wait a minute, This this is like a little period in a vast catalog. And I think that the general understanding of Zappa as an artist is more as a classical artist than as a, as a rock or popular musician.
0: You know, when he talks about the page black with notes. I used to remember black that as page, a fl- yeah. fledgling piano student. You know, you would look at the page and you just go, there is no way I'll ever be able to play that. Zappa was uh, prone to that sort of thing where he would constantly be challenging himself with this very complicated music and then telling other musicians to play it. And if they didn't play it the way he heard it in his head, there was hell to pay for everybody involved. Uh, it's an interesting dynamic. There's a perfectionist streak there that seemed to be like, was he ever fulfilled by anything he ever did? I wonder if you got a sense of that at all, you know?
1: I do. Um, I think that there's a lot of footage I have of him either in rehearsal or in performance where was there there is just a look of sheer bliss on his face. And funnily enough, sometimes that isn't even when someone is doing something that he himself has written, that he has a vision and he works to see that vision realized. But all of the artists that really truly came out of Zappa's stable, like Ruth, like Napoleon Brock, like Steve Vai, like Bozio, uh, Adrian Ballou. I mean, these are all artists that can more than hold their own without Mm -hmm. a conductor standing over their shoulders. And that's what Zappa liked about them. Mm -hmm. You know, you see Vai go completely off. Frank is watching it, he's making sure it's staying within the confines of whatever the songs are playing, but he's certainly not all over it. And I like that that contradiction. There's a division between the Zappa that's controlling everything and the Zappa that's part of a big collective that's just kind of taking off, you know, mm-hmm. in a in a artistic way and a a, a way that, that has proficiency. You know, he didn't want to mess, but it's still taking off.
2: Well, and to a man and woman, all the uh, uh, musicians you mentioned uh, all considered it like it it wasn't even a master's degree. You were getting your PhD Mm -hmm. when you played with Zappa.
1: For sure, yeah. You you were at your best, but he helped you get to your best. Mm -hmm. You know, He was very, very good at that, and the artists that worked with him really liked that aspect of it, that they knew they would come away much better than they had started.
0: The driving force seemed to be make music that no one else is making be totally original, which I guess is an impossible goal, but it seems like that was it, right?
1: Yeah, and I think that he, he really believed in um, music or the art being more than the sum of its parts. I think, again, for someone who was viewed historically as being kind of this lone genius in his ivory tower, he was extremely collaborative and communal, and had a very specific swarm of people around him that he was working with at any given time or just communing with at any given time. And I think he was always interested in making something that was more than the sum of its parts that that could really cut. I think that's why he was so excited Mm. by having the Ensemble Moderne finally having musicians around him that uh, could play the orchestral music at the level that he wanted because he couldn't just do it on the synclavier He couldn't just do it on his own. You know, he needed that that sort of communal energy to make it work, and um, that's why the Yellow Shark is is such an incredible album. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. We have been talking to Alex Winter, the director of uh, Zappa, a serious documentary, just like uh, his earlier films, The Panama Papers and Trust Machine: The Story of Blockchain. Seems like Alex, you were you were struggling first to save the modern world from itself and now uh, trying to explain one of the most difficult artists in the history of popular music. <laughs> like, and in between, your Bill.
1: <laughs> well, I, I, need a, I need a mental break.
2: Ah, I got you, brother. Thank you so much for coming on Sound Opinions.
1: Yeah, it was really great to be here. Thanks, you guys. You bet.
2: Thanks, Alex. Have you seen Alex Winter's documentary on Zappa? Let us know your thoughts. Record a message at our website, soundopinions.org. When we come back, we'll share our takes on Frank Zappa. That's in a minute on Sound
0: Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Codd. He's Jim DeRogatis, and we're reckoning with Frank Zappa this week. We just spoke with director Alex Winter about his documentary on Zappa, but now it's time for us to share our opinions on Zappa as critics. Now, I know, Jim, that I'm a, uh, more vocally in support of Zappa's music than you are, so I'm going to start us off. You know, I've got problems with Zappa's music, too. There's so much of it, and there's a lot of it that, you know, frankly, I think is not great. I don't necessarily want to listen to it, but there's incredible amount of stuff in there that is fantastic, that makes the case that we are talking about certainly one of the most important and misunderstood musical figures of the last half century,
2: Well, genius is an overused word, but the guy, uh, I think, qualifies. I mean, his intellect and his musical virtuosity and his ambition, yeah, I I can't think of many people more deserving of the word genius than Zappa.
0: Well, you know, and I think sometimes people who sort of don't dig in to, to Zappa, you know, figure they have to be in on the joke to appreciate his music. You know, there is a certain element of humor and satire there, That can be daunting on top of the fact that the music is incredibly complex uh, in some cases. And he does have a rep uh, for for smutty humor, Uh, you know, a penchant for being politically incorrect at times. Uh, He's also got a deadly serious side. And that's, I think, something that people don't realize. Early on, he was a musical subversive, not just an outspoken musician and composer, but as a social critic uh, as well. He was cutting against the grain of everything that was going on in the 60s. We mentioned earlier, uh, we're only in it for the money, right? That parody of Mm -hmm. the Beatles album. Here we are in the middle of the flower power era. Peace and love, man. And Zap was going... You guys are nuts, man. All you're just trying to profit off this stuff, you know? It's a con. It's a con. Exactly. The thing is a con. And that was not exactly a popular sentiment to be sharing at that time, you know? Not until uh, Charles Manson woke Uh, people uh, up. Right. But Zappa got there first. Then later on, obviously lashing out against Tipper Gore. He became the spokesman. Not that he volunteered for the role, but he was so incensed by the idea that the government was in some way going to repress free speech in, in a creative enterprise uh, that he spoke up about it in Congress. Incredible eloquence, and at that point, he's
2: an independent artist. I mean, it's long since the Warner Brothers days, and and you know he could have suffered serious repercussions. He's literally living on every album sold, and it's a small
0: cult following to begin with. Um, so he put his money where his mouth is. Exactly, and and nonetheless, he was able to build a following and build a career, but it was on his terms, every step of the way. There was nothing. There was no compromise in what he did. I want to go back to the uh, debut album of the Mothers of Invention from 1966, uh, Freak Out. Uh, And Zappa early on was uh, exhibiting this side where he was a serious social commentator. Very early on, he was speaking out against racism in America. He was speaking out against things like, you know, redistricting in Los Angeles where, you know, Blacks were confined to a certain part of the city and they couldn't live in the white neighborhoods. I mean, this was like a blatant uh, disregard Mm -hmm. for human rights. On that debut album, he had a song called Trouble Every Day, which he re-recorded several times throughout his career. It was the first of several... Uh, songs explicitly talking about racism. This one in particular was uh, inspired, if that's the correct word for it, after watching news coverage of the Watts riots. And he eviscerates everything in this song. The socially restrictive housing that I was talking about in Los Angeles, police violence against men of color, uh, the media coverage of those events, and the fact that the American Dream just isn't the same for everyone. There's a verse in this song where he talks about and if a million more agree, there ain't no great society, the reference to the LBJ, great society, and it applies to you and me. Our country isn't free. Uh, again, these were very powerful sentiments to be pushing out in a time of incredible division in our country. We talked about earlier about his roots in the blues. This is a pretty straightforward blues song, very garagey punk blues, similar to the early beef art stuff as well. He would move beyond that in subsequent versions of this song. There would be horns and a more elaborate arrangements, but this raw, early version always gets to me. It's uh, Trouble Every Day from the Mothers of Invention on Sound of Pants.
1: You know, we got to sit around at home and watch this thing begin. But I bet there won't be many live to see it really end. Cause a fire in the street ain't like a fire in the heart. In the eyes of all these people, don't you know that this could start on any
0: street, in any
1: town, in any state, if any clown besides that now's the time to fight For some ideal he thinks is right. And if a million more agree, there ain't no great society as it applies to you and me. Our country isn't free, and the law refused to see If all that you can ever be is just a lousy janitor Unless your uncle owns a store You know the five and every four just won't amount to nothing more They'll watch the rats go across the floor And make up songs about being poor Blow your harmonica, song.
0: Trouble Every Day by the Mothers of Invention Yeah, I'm with you on that tune, uh, Greg it's a it's a great track it holds up very well and as I said it was the first of many in that vein uh, that maybe he doesn't get enough credit for writing I want to showcase a different side of Zappa as a composer the classical composer in Zappa mm-hmm. coming out in this amazing instrumental from the Hot rats album in 1969 here he is using that 16 track equipment in a recording studio uh, you know manipulating the tape speed uh, doing uh, Incredible overdubs, fully realizing the possibilities of the studio and this three-and-a-half-minute instrumental composition. There's only four people playing on this trap. Zappa, Ian Underwood, uh, Suggy Otis on bass, Ron Salico on drums. It sounds like an orchestra in that studio. Ian Underwood was the secret weapon on a lot of Zappa's recordings, yeah. uh, the woodwinds yeah. player and also keyboard player. It's so layered, so majestic. You know, at about the 150 mark, it just sounds so incredibly powerful it's like a a king marching into the into the town square you know it's so regal and so powerful and so majestic sounding uh the way uh ian underwood's woodwinds are layered in this song i I think it's one of his most beautiful compositions one of his most uh, insistently melodic and one of the most complex at the same time it's peaches and regalia from frank zappa's hot rats album on sound opinions
2: Peaches and Regalia. Yeah, another great track, Greg. I think uh, we could spend four or five hours just highlighting a couple dozen great tracks from that vast legacy of Zappa. But if we're going to step back and deal with him as an artist, as the entire canon, and where he fits in the musical spectrum, there are some really difficult things we have to grapple with. I became aware of Zappa and began my Zappa odyssey in two ways. Number one, this guy was constantly being referenced in Modern Drummer when the (laughs) young 13 year old Jim is trying to learn how to play drums right? As the author of The Black Page. Now The Black Page shows up on, on a bunch of recordings and live concerts. Two versions of it. 96 on Lather and 1983 on Baby Snakes. This was a piece Zappa wrote for uh, drummers and percussionists as a, I dare you to try to play this. Uh, I also was drawn to Weasels Ripped My Flesh from 1970. When you're 13, when you're 14, you read, uh, This is the Nastiest Noise Ever Recorded. You're just like, Oh, yeah, I got to hear that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think around 1617, I was in a band with an older uh, guitarist who was, you know, very sophisticated, you know, two or three years older than me. And he smoked and he played guitar and he was like, oh, zappa, zappa, zappa. So, you know, uh, I'm listening to Joe's Garage, which is coming out at that point. It's a triple album, uh, three act uh, rock opera about a censorious overseer trying to stamp out the life of a young artist who happens to be in a garage rock band. Yeah, you know, that appeals to you at 16, okay? I'm basically a sophomore in high school, and the sophomoric humor is uh, about about where I'm at on my developmental scale, <laughs> And so ends my Zappa fascination, until years later, when I'm writing my first book, The History of Psychedelia, how do I deal with this guy, right? I read the telephone book-sized, doorstop analysis of Zappa's career, Frank Zappa, The Negative Dialectics of Poodle Play, (laughs) by Ben Watson. I've never read a denser music book, and I'm listening deep, and I'm understanding, I'm digging... the guitar albums i uh I am liking the classical music you know zappa could fall prey to i've got a new toy and i'm gonna abuse it i'm sorry jazz from hell francesco zappa Thingfish, fish those albums are dreadful you know <laughs> he has this new fancy digital synthesizer and he's just making music that like belongs in the easy listening category except it's more complicated my biggest problem though greg My biggest consistent problem is how this brilliant man, this well read philosopher and intellect, could consistently love the crudest, cruelest, most misogynistic I'm gonna bait the women's libbers. That's how it starts in the 60s, and then it just becomes pure misogyny by the 70s and 80s and beyond. A man who is clearly not racist, speaking out eloquently against racism, but doing a, a sort of Amos and Andy kind of uh, parody at times, asking his black vocalists to portray caricatures and stereotypes. You know, I go back now to Joe's Garage and Catholic girls, you know, when I was a sophomore in Catholic high school, I kind of dug, you know, him making fun of uh, pedophile priests and Catholic girls. And now I'm like, this is just so offensive. It is unlistenable, you know, and on top of everything else on Joe's Garage, he appears on the cover in blackface.
0: I think that's the one thing about Zappa that is least understandable, like an incredibly smart guy. And I'm with you, the sniggering, you know, teenager, and you found it, you know, funny, you know, and he obviously thought it was funny. And, you know, it, it, it isn't, <laughs> plain and simple. No,
2: it's, it, it's a stumbling block, I think, Greg. I think he is uh, more appreciated in places where people don't speak English yeah. and don't have to listen to the, to the twaddle that's coming out of his mouth.
0: Well, because he was a great musician. I mean the, the, the co- compositions were incredible in a lot of ways and uh, as he titled one of his box set albums shut up and play your guitar you know yeah, Shut up Frank Shut up and play your guitar Frank Greg we could uh,
2: talk for hours about Zappa uh, frankly I'm glad uh, we're not going to though because <laughs> I've been listening so much to it you're just trying to make sure Jim did you miss something in the Illinois Enema Bandit No, I I didn't. I don't think. But anyway, that's the conversation starter. We're always happy to hear from our listeners who disagree. And I'm sure we will get some Zappa fans who do. Meanwhile, what do we have on the show next week?
0: Next week, Jim, we have an interview with the great director uh, John Carpenter about his burgeoning musical career. For more Sound Opinions,
2: listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College
0: Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon
2: supporters. Sound Opinions was produced by Andrew Gill and Alex Claiborne.